verses 5 through 12 of Ephesians chapter 1 is our text and our focus this morning as we still are working through this one massively long sentence of the Apostle Paul as we begin the book of Ephesians today. If you would, um, the text is printed for you on the sermon discussion guide. You can also find it in your Bible on page 5976. Let's pray for God's blessing on His Word. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open up your word to us this morning that we might behold the wonder of the mystery of your plan that you have revealed to us. Lord, may it encourage us and may it motivate us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Paul continues in verse 4, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be, the, might be to the praise of His glory. This is the word of the Lord. Where do we come from? What are we? And where are we going? The lonely artist made up his mind. Today was the day that he was going to end it all for good. So he climbed the tropically wooded hill behind his Tahitian hut, more alone than ever. And the famous painter and atheist Paul Gauguin had failed to achieve meaningful success as a a painter in his lifetime. And now he'd abandoned his wife and his children. He had alienated his friends and he headed to Tahiti in search of the authentic life untouched by the poisons of conventionality, greed, and power. And now he had come to the end. And just days before, he completed one last painting, intended to be his final testament to the world. And he described its philosophical ambition to a friend as, quote, comparable to that of the gospel. It was a massive three-panel work depicting Tahitian women of all life phases. And moving from right to left, it showed the beginning of life in an infant and the end of life in a sad old woman and various stages between. In English, it was titled, Where Do We Come From? What Are We? And Where Are We Going? And now, having finished his greatest work, Gauguin walked up the wooded hill, and he swallowed all of the arsenic in the tin. But he ingested too much arsenic, causing him to violently vomit the poison up before it could take effect. He then managed to find his way back down the hill, and he would die a few years later at the age of 54. But those three questions continued to plague him and torment him, indeed all of his life. Where do we come from? What are we, and where are we going? And part of the reason why those questions tormented him is because those questions did not come from 
Gauguin himself. They came from a Christian leader in France by the name of Felix, Felix Dupinlou, who had drawn on the much larger story of Scripture. And Gauguin had studied under Felix during most of his teenage years. And Felix was convinced that once these three questions get into our hearts and our minds, they cannot be erased, not completely anyway, and particularly they weren't in this young student. And so no matter how far he roamed or ran from God, no matter how he tried to shake his past, those three questions, the questions that Felix taught as more fundamental than all the others, where do we come from, what are we, and where are we going, could not leave the tormented and seemingly unyielding Gogan. And it is two of those questions that this text addresses this morning. And in addressing these questions, Paul calls us not only to understand the answers that he gives, but to rejoice jubilantly and to rejoice profoundly for who we are in Christ and where we are going in him. The first one of these that we'll address is the third question, which is, where are we going? And Paul calls us to rejoice in the mystery of God's plan. He lays out and he says, God has given a revelation. He has given us a glimpse, an understanding of God's overarching purpose in this world about what is life about, what, is, what this world is about, what the purpose of life is about. And he describes it this way. He says, God has making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. He's saying, listen up. I'm about to tell you what is the mystery of God's plan. Here is where all of life is going, where all of life is headed. And it is this, that God is working all things in the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. And that is the answer to the searching of life. Well, let's dive into this, the different aspects that he reveals in this plan that God is working to unite all things together in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. And so it does cause us to ask, who exactly is united in this plan? What is united? And Paul gives a little bit more answer to describe this. He says this, in love, he predestined us, that God's plan was to unite some together in Christ, to unite those who were in Christ, who he chose before the foundation of the world, to unite them together. So certainly, who and what is being united in Christ is those we whom God has chosen. Now, as soon as this statement is raised, it immediately begs the question, why does God choose some? Why did he do it? Well, we get a glimpse of that answer in verse 4. It tells us here is the reason why God chose some. Here is what motivated God to do it. In love, he predestined us according to the counsel of his will. In love, God acted. We don't have all the answers as to why God chose us for those who are in Christ Jesus, but what we do know is that the reason why he did it was because of his love, and that God was delighted to do so. And if you are in Christ, God was delighted to choose you because of his love. 
Not only that, but also the other reason given is because of his love and because of God's purpose. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Why? According to the purpose of his will. Whose will? His will. He states it again in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, that is a predetermined plan, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Why did God do it? Because Simply because God decided to do it. That's the answer that he gives us. Why does God choose some? Because God decided to choose some. That's the answer. It's an answer that we need to come to terms with and come to peace with. And the terms here are saying to the purpose of him or the purpose of his will, um, the, the, the usage of that term in verses 5 and 9 could also be translated as according to the pleasure of his will. According to his good pleasure. Why did God do it? Because he wanted to. And you need to be okay with that. He did it because God chose to do it according to his plan. What was important for us to recognize in this discussion, though there's a limited amount given to us, we need to understand and recognize that the reason why God chose us in Christ is found in God. It is found in God's love. It is found in God's purpose. It is not found in us. That he chose us, predestined us, according to the pleasure of his will according to his counsel, according to his purpose, not according to my pleasure, not according to my will, not according to my choosing. And there are some dear brothers and sisters in Christ and dear churches in Christ that would assert that it is not God who chooses us, but rather it is we who choose God. And this passage would unequivocally and definitively refute such a self-centered theology. It would refute a theology that is rooted in the self and the pleasure of the self and the choice of the self, as opposed to being rooted in what Ephesians 1 says, that God is the sole actor in this passage. It is his counsel, his love, his purpose, his choosing, his action, his mind, before the foundation of the world. Not ours, but completely his. And so this passage does not answer the question why some are chosen and others are not chosen. But for those who are in Christ, who are chosen in Christ, what this should do to us is create humility and a profound sense of wonder. Far from boasting or a cause for arrogance of, I'm chosen, Rather, just the opposite should be happening, is that we should recognize, yeah, it's amazing to me. There's no good reason why God would ever choose me. I bring nothing to the table. My hands are empty. The only thing that I bring is my sin and my brokenness and and and, and the lust of my heart. That is the only thing that I, the only thing that I bring is my unworthiness. And yet, for some reason, out of love, God would choose me in Christ Jesus. It is unfathomable. My heart is filled with rejoicing and wonder at the, at the act and at the grace of God. Paul makes this, the, the, our unworthiness, how it is completely of God and not of us, a clear again in Romans chapter 5. God shows his love for us. Why does he do it? Out of his love. He shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were the enemies, 
We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. When does God choose us? When does he do this act? Not because of anything we've done or gotten our act together, but while we were sinners and enemies of God, that's when God's grace comes. That's when his plan works these things together in Christ, uniting them in Christ according to the foundation of God. Why? Simply because it was the pleasure of his goodwill. Because God decided that that's what was going to happen. So we who are in Christ, who are chosen in Christ, we should rejoice. Rejoice that it is all about God and not about us. Now, American Christianity has this, is overly focused on the individual experience of a relationship with God. You have to have one. But it's overly focused thinking that the whole sum of what God is doing in this world revolves around me. And Paul is saying, no, that's not the case. Yes, you are a part of the overarching story. But what it revolves around is God himself. Actually, it revolves around Jesus Christ. Because here is what else is included. Not only we who are chosen, but also it includes all things. For God's plan, the mystery of his will, was a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. What are those things? Things in heaven and things on earth. And Paul's usage of the phrase, all things, typically means the universe. And and in case it wasn't clear, Paul specifies to unite all things, that would be the things in heaven and the things on the earth, all things being united together in Christ. Now consider how the world pivots and rotates around Jesus Christ in the teaching of the New Testament. For all things which were created through Jesus Christ... All things which were created by Jesus Christ. All things which were created for Jesus Christ. All things which are subject under Jesus Christ. All things which hold together in Jesus Christ. All things which are purified by Jesus Christ. All things, whether in heaven or on earth, are being finally united together under Jesus Christ. That is the mystery of his plan that he has shown to us. John Stott, the renowned New Testament scholar, actually a biblical scholar, writes, In the fullness of time, God's two creation, his whole universe and his whole church, the universe and his church will be unified under the cosmic Christ who is the supreme head of both. I hope this truth profoundly encourages you. Because remember, Paul is writing from prison. He is writing to a church that is struggling, that feels feels ostracized, isolated, and alone. And he draws upon these truths. And he is teaching because, and he is teaching this truth, this truth that God has revealed this mystery so that we, who are in Christ Jesus, that we would look back into eternity past and see what God did before the foundation of the world. And at the same time, we would look forward into eternity in the future of what God is doing to unite all things in heaven on earth in Jesus Christ, that we would take these two things, eternity past and eternity future, and we would grasp hold of them so that in this present moment, we would know every spiritual blessing that God has given to us. So that right now, we would grasp hold of what we have right now in Christ that we are chosen in him, that we are secure and chosen and made made a child of God, that we would live holy and blameless lives. 
it answers the question from Gauguin, where are we going? Stott succinctly answers, for history is neither meaningless nor purposeless. It is moving towards a glorious goal. And what this means is that suddenly everything is bestowed with value. Everything is bestowed with meaning and purpose. It means your life matters. It means your family matters. And your job matters. And this earth matters. And these heavens matter. Because all of these things are being united together in Jesus Christ and under Jesus Christ. And in God's mysterious plan, in Christ Jesus, you are being, you are being united to something that is so much greater than yourself. You, as an individual, are being united into this cosmic storyline that is bigger than you, so much bigger than you, infinitely bigger than you, yet gives meaning and purpose to your little slice of existence on the face of this earth. Where are we going? All things are being united in Jesus Christ. That should give us a cause to rejoice in God's purpose. To rejoice because in Christ Jesus you are a part of it. To rejoice because to you God has given insight into the mystery of his plan for us and for all of the creation. Now in this plan, I think the most significant aspect of this mystery for us as individuals is how exactly God unites us into this plan for all eternity. And how God unites us into this plan is in the mystery of adoption. The mystery of adoption in which we should rejoice. And this answers Gauguin's second question, what are we? Verses 4 through 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. What are we? We are adopted sons of God. Here is why this truth is so important and so pivotal in the Christian life. J.I. Packer, great theologian of the 20th century, gives this very perceptive comment, which I would say, yes, this is absolutely true in my experiences. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, Everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively, distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. The mystery of adoption. Now, the concept of adoption would have been something that would have been well understood by the Ephesian church that Paul wrote this letter to, would have been well understood by anyone who was living throughout the Mediterranean under the Roman Empire. Namely, because their current emperor, 
a man by the name, the first emperor, at this point was not, he was not the emperor anymore, but the first emperor, the one who was emperor when Jesus Christ was born, an emperor by the name of Caesar Augustus, was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And he was not of lineage, he was of very humble origins. And Julius Caesar, after, who was not an emperor, but Julius Caesar, after one of the conquests, ultimately adopts Octavian, known as Augustus, to be his son. Subsequently, Julius Caesar is tragically murdered, Ides of March, that whole thing. Julius Caesar's murdered. Augustus becomes the first emperor of Rome. And he was the adopted child, and that's why he was in that position. And as the adopted child, adoption became something that was commonly practiced and well understood within Roman society. Because within Roman society, if in Roman society, you needed a son for there to be an heir of your estate. Daughters were not eligible and women were not eligible. So if you did not have a son, a Roman person, or particularly a wealthy Roman person, would adopt someone to be his son. And they would adopt the person to be his son to pass on his name and to pass on his inheritance to them. And sometimes that person would adopt uh, the child of a friend. Sometimes that Roman would adopt a slave, either from themselves or a slave that he felt was particularly noteworthy and remarkable. Why this matters so much is because the term that's used here is he says, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. That's important. And in fact, in Greek, that's one word, adoption of sons, is one phrase in the Greek. Adoption of sons. And the reason why that matters is because by being adopted as sons, it means you have an inheritance. It means that you are bestowed the rights of the firstborn child. And so the term of adoption as sons, and as the Bible uses that term, that's not a slight on women. In fact, it's just the opposite. Because it is saying that all Christians... Male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, all Christians in Christ Jesus become sons of God. And as a son of God, they become heirs of every spiritual blessing from the Father in heaven. From the Father in heaven. As a son of God, you have obtained an inheritance. An inheritance that you did not have before, but you now have because you were adopted as a son. In Christ, in love, God adopted you into his family. And if God has made you his child, you cannot be unadopted. I want you to hear one lady's reflection on this truth of adoption, about what it means for the Christian faith. This is written by someone who was a professing Christian for a very long time, but always struggled as a follower of Christ. And what she writes is this. It's a little bit of a longer quote. She says this. Adoption is attractive to me because it is the perfect antidote to legalism. Legalism was the driving force of my life. I kept trying to be good enough for God, but despaired at how impossible the task was. At the very heart, I was afraid of one thing. At some point, I would do something terrible and consequently lose my salvation. Although the church I was raised in preached assurance of salvation, I often wondered if I believed it mostly simply because I just wanted it to be true. 
The confusion came from the fact that although the churches I attended said they believed in the assurance of salvation, they preached a list of things that one had to do to be a good Christian. I got the feeling that if you failed in any of those areas, you probably were not saved to begin with. And the study of adoption has clarified the confusion I once felt. She continues, Adoption is the legal procedure which secures a child's identity in a new family. God didn't choose to be our foster parent with no legal standing. We don't get kicked out of the family because of bad behavior. We don't have to worry day to day whether or not we're good enough to be a part of the family. In his infinite infinite kindness, God made us a permanent part of his family. Nothing can undo the legal procedure that binds me to Christ. He died to redeem me. He signed the adoption papers, so to speak, with his blood. Nothing can cancel the work that he did for me. I am free from the fear of falling away. Hallelujah. And if you are in Christ, rejoice in your adoption as sons. And I would urge you to meditate on this truth more than any other aspect of the Christian faith. Because it is in this truth that the other truths are found. Because adoption is not only this aspect that you have an inheritance, but adoption includes redemption. Adoption includes redemption. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Redemption entails deliverance from bondage. Liberation from imprisonment. For someone to be redeemed, it was deliverance by the payment of a price. And the term was particularly used for the ransoming of slaves, the redeeming of slaves. And so if a Roman was adopting a slave to be his son, first he would have to redeem the slave in order to adopt the slave. First, he would have to pay the price to set the slave free so that he would be free to be adopted. Redemption is good, adoption is better. And the price that Jesus paid is the blood, his own blood, shed on the cross. Indeed, Paul makes this connection between redemption being necessary for adoption, particularly clear in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who are under the law. Why are they redeemed? So that, redemption, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Again, one phrase there, adoption as sons. Redeemed, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, notice the transformation that goes on here. So you are no longer a slave. Why are you no longer a slave? Because you've been redeemed. You are no longer a slave but a son. Why are you a son? Because you've been adopted as a son after you've been redeemed. You are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, guess what? Then an heir through God. The inheritance has been given to you and bestowed upon you. And if you are in Christ Jesus, there should be great cause for rejoicing because not only have you been redeemed, but you've been adopted. More than that, what's also necessary is not simply redemption, but what is also necessary is the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In him, we have, re- we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Let's, de- let's delineate between redemption and forgiveness here. If redemption is deliverance from 
bondage by a price being paid. Forgiveness is deliverance from the judgment of God. It is deliverance from the judgment that is due to us for our sins, for the ways that we break God's law. And God purposed that the judgment against his would-be adopted children would be exacted upon Jesus Christ so that we would not be judged, but that the judgment would be satisfied, that we would be delivered from judgment through Jesus Christ on his death on the cross so that with the judgment satisfied, you can now be adopted. Forgiveness is good. Adoption is better. Redemption is good. Adoption is better. And God purposed that it was going to be forgiveness from our sins and forgiveness from our trespasses. There's this experience that I have several, a couple times a year. And it occurs with people um, who have grown up in our church and have gone off, to, gone off to college or have moved away, but particularly who have grown up in our church, graduated high school in Southern Maryland, and have gone off to college and have gone on, on to live life. And oftentimes what happens is that I have these conversations and they are struggling, the person is struggling with their faith. And they're struggling with, do they really believe it? Do they not really believe it? They're struggling with, is, um, is, do I just believe this because this, this is just what I was raised in? And as I press into it, most commonly, the issue that they're struggling with is their trespasses. Is their trespasses. And what trespasses are is, is a trespass is a willful and deliberate violation of the law. It is, I see the no trespassing sign, I know the no trespassing sign, and I'm going to do it anyway. And so what happens is that people who grow up in the church, and maybe they're good kids and genuinely are, they're the type of kids that you want all of your kids to be friends with and what have you, and they grow up and they, and they go off to school and they go off through life, and suddenly they sin. And they don't just sin, but they trespass. They do something that they know they shouldn't do. They know they're going to do something, they're about to do something that God tells them not to do, and they do it. And they do it deliberately, and they do it willfully. And then suddenly they're overcome with guilt, and they're questioning whether or not they're a Christian or whether or not they're a Christian at all. Right? And part of the struggle that they're going through is saying, is they're saying, wait a second, I can't believe that I did this. I knew I wasn't supposed to do it. My family taught me that I was not supposed to do it. My church taught me that I was not supposed to do it. And guess what? I did it. I decided to do it. And I did it. And the truth that I encourage them with is this. In Christ, we have the forgiveness of our trespasses. We have the forgiveness of our deliberate willful violations of the law of God and breaking the law of God. And what I say to them quite often is this. In Christ, you have the forgiveness of your sins. And maybe I think that the reason why you're struggling with this so hard right now is because this is really the first time in your life that you've ever, that you've actually conceded that you're really a sinner. That you really have done things that have broken God's law. And God in his mercy is beginning to let you see the depths of your sinfulness so that you would know 
that forgiveness is not a warm, fuzzy concept, but forgiveness is for real people who commit real trespasses, who don't need a, well, that's okay, you didn't mean to do it, I know you're trying really hard. They don't need that. What they need is they need forgiveness. And that forgiveness comes through Jesus Christ. And we are forgiven by what Christ has done, taking the judgment against us, we are redeemed by the, Christ, the price that Christ paid. Why? So that we could and would indeed be part of a greater truth, adopted and united into Christ with all things in heaven and on earth. And as Paul is working through this passage in Ephesians, the first several verses focus on the past, that he predestined us before the foundation of the world. He did these things in the past, before God loved you, before you ever thought of him. But he encourages us at this point to say those things aren't, this isn't about the past and this isn't about the future. This is about right now. That right now, in this present moment, there is forgiveness. Right now, you have redemption. You have forgiveness. You have the inheritance as a son of God, not as some future reality, but a reality that is present in your life right now so that you would grab hold of eternity past and eternity future into this present moment and to say, I am a child of God. And because I am a child of God, I am redeemed through his blood and I am forgiven from the judgment due against me because of Jesus Christ. Praise God for his love that he has set upon me. So, if you are in Christ, you have been predestined apart from you. You've been chosen. You've been united to the mysterious plan of God. You have been united to Christ Jesus with all things in this cosmic storyline overarching all. You've been loved by God before the foundation of the world. If you're in Christ, you have been adopted and you have the inheritance of a son. You have redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. You have forgiveness. Judgment has been satisfied. You are adopted. You are redeemed. You are forgiven in this present moment if you are in Christ Jesus, which begs the question, are you in Christ Jesus? And if you're not in Christ Jesus... I would urge you this to be the day that you turn from yourself and you trust wholly in Jesus Christ. For in him that you trust that all of these blessings are found only through a relation of Jesus Christ. And the only thing required of you is that you believe. And the mysterious plan of God works like this. Those who are chosen believe in Jesus. And there comes a point in your life when you say yes I will believe in him. May this be the day that you become experientially, not just from eternity past, but in your own life. Would today be the day of redemption and the day of forgiveness and the day of adoption? Because this is the day that you have turned and, believe in Je- and, turned and believed in Jesus Christ. At the same time, for those of you here who are in Christ, rejoice. Rejoice because you have a wonderful, merciful Savior who has rescued the souls of men, who has adopted you as a son, who has redeemed you, who has forgiven you, and who is uniting all things to himself 
whether things in heaven or on earth. And so may these truths fill you with joy. May they fill you with rejoicing. And may you sing your heart out to the Lord in praise of him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I stand in awe of you. Not just simply that you have an eternal plan, but that you have chosen to reveal a small glimpse of your eternal plan because of your love and because of your purpose. Father, I pray that we would not engage in endless, mindless uh, theological jumping jacks and cartwheels over these truths, but rather that we would embrace the truth, which is not human speculation, but which is divine revelation. And Lord, that these truths would encourage us in the unquestionable security that we have in you and the unfathomable love that we have as the Son of God in Christ Jesus. Lord, open our hearts that we may sing your praise. In Jesus' name, amen.